a world of information, advice and support available 24-7. The best way to stay current with great ideas. Love and support. Uplifting and reassuring. A constant source of inspiration and positive thinking. Like a staff room without cynics. Gives you a sense of belonging. An unlimited resource. A very supportive bunch of like-minded people. The reason I'm where I am today. A source of mad sanity in the crazy world of teaching. Feel the love. You're listening to the MFL Twitterati Podcast, the podcast celebrating the voices of language teachers from around the world. This is Episode 8, Escape Rooms. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the MFL Twitterati Podcast, the podcast aimed at language teachers wanting to find new ways of enhancing language learning with and without the use of technology. My name is Joe Dell, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, podcast buddy, partner in crime, Noah Geisel. Now, before we start today's episode, we're going to give a heartfelt tribute to the wonderful Di Barnes, who very sadly passed away in the last week. He was the co-host with the lovely Doug Belshaw for the Tide podcast, of which I know Noah and myself were big fans. And we'd just like to pay our respects to Di. And um, I don't know if you want to say a few words now at this point before we kick into the main content of the podcast. Yeah, absolutely, Joe. These are just the hardest moments when we have to think about just the stuff that really matters. And, you know, our condolences go out to Di's family, everyone who knew him. I knew of him through Doug Belshaw and his friendship and mentorship. And, you know, you and I, Joe, have talked a lot about how that Tide podcast is an inspiration for our conversations that eventually turned into this podcast. And uh, he will be dearly missed. Yeah, I just think this is really heartbreaking news. The fact that Di has passed away so young and and all the support that he used to give people willingly, sincerely. It's just such a loss to the EdTech community. I first met Di back in around 2007, I think it was, when he took part in the EdTech Roundup online meetup that he hosted along with um, with Doug Belshaw. And I'm sure that's where their relationship first blossomed. It was one of these online meetings whereby educators from around the world would meet up and chat about the latest themes around EdTech that we could all get our, our teeth into and discuss things. And sincerely, it was it was amazing. And, and then the first time I met him face to face would have been at the initial uh, Teach Week bets, again, around the same sort of time. And it was just so lovely to meet him face-to-face and to get a real sense of of his essence and his soul and, and being such a warm and sincere person. I just think it's it's terrible news. And we're recording this this episode on the 13th of um, August. And I saw that Doug tweeted out that this is actually the very day when Di is being cremated around 10 o'clock UK time this evening. And he's asked that everyone holds up a glass to die. So I think both Noah and I would like to hold up a virtual glass to die in tribute for all the things that he shared with the community over the years. And he will certainly be very much missed and certainly never, ever, ever forgotten. And um, for those people that, that aren't aware of Dai's amazing work, I would really encourage you to check out some of those podcast episodes and hear through his voice what a lovely human being he was. And uh, And I'm certainly going to really miss him. I'm sure you are as well, Noah. So moving on, Noah, how have you been? I've been really fantastic and getting excited for the start of school year. I understand you've been 
busy with travel and home projects. That's right. No, since the last time we spoke, I've done another one of those mobile technologies course I talked about last time. This time it was in Southampton as opposed to the Cardiff. And it was with a group of uh, German teachers looking at how mobile technologies could be used in a bring-your-own-device classroom context. And it was great fun. And in fact, after this recording, I'm going back to Southampton to do a two-day course with um, a group of teachers from places like Slovenia and Lithuania and Hungary and Bulgaria. So that's going to be lots of uh, fun as well. But um, for my R&R for this month, I actually went on holiday, had a bit of a break and went to Sidmouth for the Sidmouth Folk Week, which is in the southwest of England uh, in Devon. Um, the uh, the weather was beautiful, apart from the last two days when we had sort of hurricane type conditions. And in fact, they had to close the main marquee where all the big bands play. And they moved us all to another marquee, which was a bus ride away. And they had to cancel that as well because of the wind. The actual ceiling was actually, you know, quaking, as it were, and, and moving. And it was like one of these like sort of like metal structures. And it was Whoa. the metal structure was like moving in the wind. So the uh, the main organizer came on and said, I'm really sorry, folks, we're going to have to cancel this for public safety. So in addition to the uh, structural issues of the concert, how is the construction going at, at your home? <laughs> well, as you know, um, I'm living in a bit of a building site at the moment. So we're having major work done on the house over the summer Month, so uh, July, August, and I think hopefully it's going to be finished by the middle of September. So they're knocking down walls, they're knocking out chimneys, it's just bedlam. So everything's covered in dust and dirt. So it was lovely to get away for a few days at Sidmouth and it'll be lovely to be going on other things I'm doing this month as well. I've got a, a week's course in Lithuania as well at the end of this month. So yeah, it's not the best uh, of times, but um, I keep telling myself it's going to be amazing by the end of uh, the construction when everything is going to be amazing. We're going to have some new rooms and lovely light coming into the house. So it's going to be fantastic. And what about you, um, Noah? How's life going for you at the moment? Stuff here in Denver is fantastic. Uh, Ashley and I have finished up a little construction project of our own, turning our first floor into a apartment. And we actually have our first Airbnb guest coming in tomorrow. So, folks, when, when you're coming to Denver, let us host you and uh, come give a visit. But everything's really great. You know, we're getting ready for the start of school here. My back-to-school panic dreams have set in. Um, everything <laughs> from standing in front of the room wearing nothing but tidy whities and, and trying to fake it to uh, showing up for the first day of school with no tie and having to run all around town trying to find a tie. You know, th- those back-to-school panic dreams that we get as teachers. Awesome. Now, talking of going back to school, one of the things which had come up on my radar in the last couple of weeks is the fact that different members of the MFL Twitterati have been looking for different solutions for creating digital planners to get themselves organized for the new academic year. And I've noticed that the four most popular digital planner suggestions are Idosio, OneNote, Planboard and Google Calendar. We're now going to hear from Mr. Low Teacher, Alina K. Romidar, RCCS underscore Miss Baller and Rebecca Wiley, who are going to describe the virtues of their own digital planner of choice. Hi, it's Chris Lowe or Mr. Lowe Teacher on Twitter. And this is why I use IDACO for planning. Main reasons were for moving away from the paper mountain and to reduce what I carry in my work bag. And it's got multiple tools and connectivity that help me. Some of the useful features are the teacher's planner. So it can be configured for any number of periods and for any number of weeks that recur, so like a two-week timetable, which is what I've got. And you can add links to documents that you have, which is really useful if you're trying to remember something and you can connect your iPad up to your school's projecting devices. You can font format, and it's easy to glance at a week, so if you're looking for key trends. And 
The calendar integration is another great feature that I really like. So you can keep your personal calendar and your work calendar together, handy for organizing and giving yourself reminders. The class list and seating plans function. The classes can be imported from different sources and management systems, but Excel is probably best for that. Or type in if you've got the time. It can be photo based and that will give you then seating plans and they can be added and changed and you can use random name generators there to help you when teaching in the classroom. There's the mark book and register. You can use different icons and they can be customized for ease of use. There are various different input modes for different data types, which can all be downloaded and that's useful for discussion at parents' evenings and that sort of thing. The columns in the mark book can all be resized, totaled, averaged and copied and pasted to suit whatever you need to do. The wider use, though, you can send emails to pupils with resources, which can be integrated. There's a notice board for notes and things like that. And there's also a lot more stuff in there to discover. So my top tips are look at the helpful guides online, so YouTube and the IDCA website. You can block out all the holidays to avoid having blank weeks in your planner and start small and increase the features that you use, which is what I'm going to do in the next academic year. Hello, MFL Twitterati. My name is Elina Kromida, and I've been teaching languages in schools and online. I'm here to share with you my practice on using OneNote in teaching and learning languages. OneNote is a Windows 10 application for creating digital notebooks, digital three-ring binders, as I like to think of them, where I can put all my lesson planning and organize my resources, text, images, audio, video, or links, and I can get as creative as I like with digital ink. OneNote has been my Swiss army knife of organizing and sharing lessons and resources with students and colleagues. OneNote is versatile and adapts to anyone's note-taking preferences. You can organize digital notebooks by sections and pages in a way that makes sense to you. For example, me, sometimes I like to organize information based on time, like week one, week two, week three, etc. Some other times I prefer to organize my content, say chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, etc. And very often I use it as a digital scrapbook and I just throw everything together in a pile with little or no organization at all, which is just as valid as a choice in OneNote. With OneNote, my lesson plans go digital, and that means that I can have them available to click and play or share on any device, anytime. But the best part of it is that I can use my planning to copy-paste resources and create digital notebooks for my students. As language teachers, we all know how important it is for our students to have the opportunity to practice and extend the learning beyond classroom. And OneNote is an excellent tool for making blended learning possible for my students. It's like giving each student a digital book of notes taken or resources taught during the lesson. A digital book that I can share with them so that they can have the lesson available from their devices in school, at home or anywhere they can have access to a device. So go ahead teachers, try your note, unleash learning across all school devices. Hi, so my name is Becky Baller. My Twitter handle is at RCCS underscore Miss Baller. And I want to tell you why I love using Planboard by Chalk as a digital teacher planner. I've used a planner every day since I qualified and I never thought I'd replace my paper planner. But I found Planboard through a colleague of mine and I absolutely love it. I set it up on my laptop, my desktop, 
so I can set my bespoke timetable. We run on a two-weekly timetable. I can figure it all out and set up half-term blocks and then colour code my classes. Then in the week, I use it via an iPad in school or you could use it using any tablet or phone. It works on Macs, PCs. It works on Android devices as well. The really nice thing is as you add it, you can put your lessons in. You can add links directly to Google Drive or to Microsoft files. You can copy lessons then from one class to another. You can share your planner then via email or print it out if you're leaving cover work for somebody and you can share information with other teachers. Another really good advantage is that it's totally free of charge for nearly every feature that you would need every day. I wouldn't need to pay for it at all. I hope that's given you an insight into the great thing that is Planboard as a digital planner for you. Hi, my name is Rebecca Wiley. I am Rebecca Wiley on Twitter. I am a secondary school German teacher in the north of England and I've been asked to record some audio about how I use Google Calendar to plan my lessons. I've been using Google Calendar for the last half term roughly following a recommendation of a colleague who was also using it successfully. I've never particularly been happy with things I've tried in the past, for example, the traditional sort of teacher planner. And I've also tried planning using spreadsheets. I found them a bit clunky and not really satisfactory for myself. Plus, since the introduction of a two-week timetable, I've just felt the need to be there a little bit more organised. And I'm trying to save on time, as we all are. So the way I use Google Calendar is I put in my lessons for the week and then you can choose to have them repeated weekly or bi-weekly. So it's entirely up to you how often you want them repeated. I enter the details of the lesson and put links to resources on there as well. And as a school, we have Google. So we use Google Drive, which means that it's really straightforward. I put links to the slideshows and worksheets and it just takes them straight there. About 10 minutes before the lesson starts, I get a reminder which pops up and I just click on it and everything's there ready for me. If you're using a computer with a smart board or a screen, you can just freeze the screen or obviously on your device as well. It's also got a really handy to-do list, which I use to keep on top of things. You can put dates and times in there too. But what's really impressive at the moment is that you can now have two Google accounts open at the same time. So I have my personal Google account open as well as the school's department drive account, which means I can flip backwards and forwards between the two. Okay, I hope that's been useful. Thank you very much. So thanks as always to those amazing and organised educators from the MFL Twitterati sharing their top tips on getting started with digital planners. That's been on my radar. What about you, Know What's on your radar at the moment? Yeah, Joe, and a tribute to those very well-organized teachers, I'm having a rare moment of playing ahead myself. And so my radar this episode is about the World Language Teacher Summit being organized by Jared Rami. It's happening September 23rd to 27th. Folks who are interested can check it out, worldlangteachers.com. There's also an open Facebook group if you want to get information and connect with others there. And really, this is something that Jared is organizing for the second year where he has gotten together nearly three dozen language experts from all around the world to record amazing free professional development. All you have to do is go sign up on the website, you give your email, and when the conference goes live, you will have access to amazing professional development from language experts from around the world, people we've talked about and with on this podcast, including from Joe and myself, if you want to slum it a little bit. So that's what my radar moment is for this episode, Joe. Hola, hola. This is Speaking Latino on Twitter, and I want to share with you that I'm hosting the World Language Teacher Summit this September 22nd to the 30th. WLTS is the largest online conference for world language teachers where you can learn the newest techniques, tricks, and tips 
that 35 successful world language teaching experts use to motivate, engage, and captivate students in the language classroom. What's unique about the WLTS conference? It's online, so there's no need for expensive travel or days away from home. The best part? It's completely free from September 22nd to the 30th. That's right. All 34 presentations will be free for you to watch on those dates. Finally, I'm excited to share here that your MFL Twitterati podcast hosts, Joe Dale and Noah Geisel, will be presenting at the conference on their best tech tips to engage your students. Other topics include creating community in the world language classroom, classroom management 101, comprehensible input with non-readers, routines for the world language classroom, and motivating reluctant language learners. Check back with Noah, Joe, and the MFL Twitterati podcast for more information on how to register. Again, it's the World Language Teacher Summit live and free from September 22nd to the 30th. Yeah, awesome stuff. So for those people interested in checking out our presentation, it's going to be called The Making of the MFL Twitterati Podcast, Professional Development for Your Ears. Great stuff there in the radar segment of the show. Moving on to our takeaway segment at Joe Dale. I understand you're still have some awesome stuff for us regarding the GCSE exams. Absolutely no. Now this is the month in August when lots of students from around the UK or certainly in the Northern Hemisphere are waiting for the results of their GCSE and A-level exams that they've worked very hard for I'm sure and what really resonated with me for this particular takeaway is the fact that A. Adams 2127 who's the head of department in a school in the UK decided 18 months ago to study for his own Spanish GCSE. Now, my understanding is the reason he did that was to get a better understanding of language learning in general from his students' perspective and also how he could maybe change the pedagogy of his department's teaching strategies within his school. And here's Alex to explain a little bit more. Hi, this is Alex Davies, uh, Twitter handle at aadams2127. I'm talking today about my decision to do my Spanish GCSE. This year, a decision I took about 18 months ago that started off as a bet with some of our more disengaged year 10 and 11 students. Having just become head of department at my school, I was popping into primarily cover lessons, but equally normal lessons with other members of staff to just see where the department was at, where we needed to maybe develop some things in terms of pedagogy and curriculum and started to take a little bit of student voice. And I was really surprised actually at the level of frustration disengagement and in some cases actual anger amongst our students at the disconnect they felt between what they were seeing in lessons, the language that was being presented, what they're expected to understand and how that didn't really reflect on the language they needed to communicate effectively and be successful in their productive skills. So in terms particularly of their speaking. So I took the decision to TA in some of these lessons, in in some of my free time, to engage on a different level with some of those young people and approach things much, much more as a linguist than as a Spanish specialist. So I started to talk to students about where the critical language was, how they could reapply it easily to get what I described as quick gains. And off the back of some of those discussions, some of the students, as I say, made a bet with me to put my my money or my reputation where my mouth was and show them how easy or otherwise it would be for me to be successful myself in a language that I'd never formally studied. And again, that shared experience led me to do some intervention work with our four plus and five plus students in the short run. 
And then as I started to go about trying to find ways, methods and resources for revision myself, I started to talk more to our seven plus, our more able linguists about what successful revision looked like, how they could go about adapting structures to show more complexity in their work and develop more fluency. And it really captured the imagination, not just amongst the students, but amongst my colleagues. And it changed the the level of discussion that we had about our pedagogy, about how we were adapting our teaching to the needs of our students. And it's led to a complete transformation in our curriculum, which we'll be launching in September. So we're moving away from that traditional textbook base to a much more input flooding background and basis where 80 to 90% of the content in lessons is reusable, recyclable, it's seen and understandable to really try and remove some of those barriers that our, our young people had when they were walking into a languages classroom. That idea that everything or almost everything that they see and they're exposed to is something that they can directly reapply to be communicative and to make themselves understood in the foreign language has been really, really significant. And as I say, it's, it's changed the discussions that we have as professionals. It's changed the discussions that I've had with the young people, not just in Spanish, but in French and German as well. And that individual bet has led to a series of bets with various different people just challenging themselves to raise their game to the level that they imagine I will be, to follow my lead in terms of revision, in terms of how I structure how I go about things, whether it's in lessons, in intervention or elsewhere. And it's opened up a real understanding from myself about what that student experience is. Just sitting the exam and, and knowing what those young people go through, what it feels like to be under that pressure and what it does to your thought process has been really, really powerful in improving my own pedagogy improving the clarity of thought that I have around teaching and learning and learning languages in particular. And it has been without a doubt the most powerful CPD that I've done in my career to date. Thank you so much, Alex, for that inspirational story and sharing it with the MFL Twitterati podcast. And I couldn't agree more, Joe Dale. I mean, I think some of the best professional development we can do as language teachers is to gain empathy for the language learning experience by, you know, if we can't afford the time and, and effort to go all in like Alex did on actually learning a new language, take the time and effort to sit in on one class period of a colleague who's teaching a language that you don't know. Just so that, you know, for me personally, I know sitting in on a French class, I saw the teacher, you know, going super slow and it was still way too fast for me as a new language learner. And so that helped me understand for my own students how as slow as I thought I was going, I needed to slow it down. And there's just so much stuff we can get from observing and stealing ideas from our colleagues who are all too willing to share with us. And so just thank you, Alex, for that amazing bit of sharing and Joe, awesome takeaway. Awesome. Now, talking of takeaways, what about your takeaway for this month's uh, episode, Noah? Yeah, you know, at the risk of the MFL Twitter I podcast takeaway section just becoming the Meredith White section, you know, <laughs> something that I wanted to share is just another piece of amazingness from, you know, as I've said, one of the most prolific and just inspired language teachers around right now, and that's at PRHS Spanish. 
Meredith White is just really doing some next level stuff that is just so inspirational to me. And the one that she shared is an activity that she's calling One Word Answer. And so she subscribes to the New York Times in Spanish daily email. And she's just going in taking screenshots of three little, just the headline, a picture, and the first kind of paragraph of, of the article and creating, uh, it looks like probably a Google slide where she for, you know, on day five of Spanish one. So these students have had, you know, literally under three and a half hours of high school Spanish, and she's already hitting them with authentic content that is not meant for language learners. It's meant for language speakers. And she threw the questions that really kind of guide the answers is setting these language learners up for success where they're having this experience looking at, you know, stuff that's made for fluent people. And they're saying, I can get this. And I think that's amazing. Yeah, absolutely amazing stuff. Fantastic. Yeah, and don't just cut me off yet on my Meredith White Fan Club <laughs> newsletter, Joe, because we're not done. Because another thing she did, you know, we've talked in previous episodes about how great Flipgrid can be for formative assessment. And something that Meredith is also sharing during this first week of classes for her is how she is using the rubric function inside of Flipgrid to give meaningful feedback just on a one to five scale for formative level uh, assessment. I think that's just really smart. It's saving her tons of time while also giving her students something more than just a number, just actual meaningful feedback. Thanks to the rubric function, Flipgrid. Awesome stuff there, Meredith. Yeah, great idea there from Meredith, as always, for putting rubrics inside Flipgrid. You could do the same thing for the GCSE photo card for the speaking exam as well, for those teachers listening to this in the UK. And in fact, we're going to have another shout out for Flipgrid in the show and tell section, which is going to be focusing on murder mysteries and escape rooms in a moment, where R. Casey is going to be talking about how he uses Flipgrid to do what he calls a flip hunt in conjunction with Google Forms for his type of escape room. But more of that in a moment. The MFL Twitterati podcast is brought to you by Linguascope. Linguascope.com is an award-winning language learning website trusted and used daily by thousands of schools worldwide. When your school subscribes to Linguascope, students get access to a wealth of interactive activities in a dozen different languages, with over 140 topics covered. The games can be played on interactive whiteboards, computers or on tablets. There are free apps students can download on their own devices. All staff and students can log in both from school as well as from home, making it ideal for homework too. The website also contains a host of resources to make teachers' lives easier, from principal worksheets to customizable interactive games templates. If Linguascope is new to you, then you'll feel like all your Christmases have come at once. Teachers truly find Linguascope.com invaluable, and you will soon notice the positive impact on your students' motivation and learning. But don't take our word for it. Visit Linguascope.com and click on Learn More to find out what the website has to offer. We guarantee that you will fall in love with Linguascope. Welcome back, MFL Twitter I podcast listeners. We have arrived to this episode's MFL show and tell section. And for this episode, we are focusing on murder mysteries and escape rooms and how they can be used in the language classroom for promoting things like critical thinking skills, independent learning and collaboration. And you know, we're going to be looking at the importance of creating narrative from the beginning, setting a number of different clues as a way of making tasks more engaging and purposeful, as well as setting an ultimate goal for students to achieve. And we're going to be hearing from a range of practitioners who are going to be describing what's worked for them and sharing their insights on what is required to put together this type of activity. Joe, who do we have sharing with us this episode? Well, first of all, we have at Monsieur Waith, at SPSmith45, and at Mademoiselle Easby talking about successful activities that they've used around solving a mystery from a set of clues. 
Hello, my name is John Waif and I am head of upper school at Les Murcia in Spain. I wanted to share a very simple yet effective resource that I use in the classroom and that is mysteries. This is an idea that I borrowed from the fantastic Martin Billet. It's a simple method to give a reading task a purpose which leads to greater engagement and curiosity from, from the students. Basically, you start with a simple question such as where should a family spend their summer holidays and you give three possible answers or three possible holiday destinations. I then give the students 12 to 15 bits of information on paper. So as a group, they have to analyze and understand the information to decide where the family should go. There's no right or wrong answer. And the bits of information might say, for example, the son likes to go kayaking at the beach, the grandmother gets seasick, the father is unemployed because he recently lost his job, or I might put in some red herrings, such as the daughter likes to go skiing, even though it's the summer holidays. And then the students are working in small groups, and they're very much in, in the struggle zone, but they have a reason to understand the information, because I believe our, our job is to challenge all students to think deeply and engage in, in a healthy struggle. So I start this off as a reading task in pairs or small groups with students trying to come up with an answer and, and debate amongst themselves. Then we do it orally as a class and I get the students to give their answer, but to justify it, which is then bounced around. Do you agree? Do you not agree with this answer? And then we do it as a written task where the students explain where the family should go on holiday and why they should go there. I've done this type of task with year seven all the way up to year 13 on topics such as holiday, sport, leisure activities, even immigration, integration with A-level. And basically it's a simple way of transforming a dull reading task. It's inherently differentiated. It has scaffolding provided and students work collaboratively to assimilate the information. And I just walk around the classroom nudging and helping as the students work through it. And Dylan Williams says that a shared goal or a shared objective is essential for collaborative work to be successful. And I think this is implicit as students want to know the solution to the mystery. It's very, very simple. It only takes a few minutes to create and I would really recommend you give it a go. Hi, I'm SP Smith 45, Steve Smith, and I want to tell you about a game called Alibi. This is a game that will take about 20 to 30 minutes with an intermediate or advanced class. It's great for listening and speaking and it goes like this. So you tell the class at the beginning of the lesson that there's been a crime committed the night before and that there are two suspects that come from your class. You then invite two members of the class to go out of the class for about five or ten minutes. They've got to prepare an alibi together. It's got to be something that they've done together, like a trip to the restaurant or a trip to the cinema, something where they can come in one by one to confirm each other's story. So while they're out of the classroom, uh, you prepare with the rest of the class a series of questions on the board, which then the class can use later to refer to. And then one by one, the two students outside come in to be interrogated. You might have someone in the class who keeps a note of the answers. So the first person is interrogated, and you as the teacher, you can keep the thing going by asking your own questions. You'll be using past tenses like, what were you doing? What was the weather like? What did you do next? What did you eat? What did you drink? Etc. Etc. So the second person comes in, gets the same questions. There are always moments of humor when you discover differences between the two stories or when you discover that the two people have been really well prepared. And at the end of the lesson, then the class vote to decide if the stories were good enough to warrant them being voted as innocent or guilty. So that's Alibi, and it's a fantastic game, which I've used many times and which has never failed. 
Bonjour, it's Mademoiselle Easby here and today I'm going to be talking to you about a French lesson that I did with my Year 9 class based on an idea I got from Neil Griffith's 100 Ideas for Teaching Languages and it's kind of a, a murder mystery type of lesson so I called it um, Who Stole the Mona Lisa and um, I put the class into groups or four groups of about five or six suspects and there was one group of detectives and on the suspects tables I put some information about their alibis if you like so they had to come up with a believable alibi to say where they were when the Mona Lisa was stolen so I gave them five different categories so there was where they were what they were eating who they were with what they were wearing things like that and there were five phrases in each all numbered and each suspect had to pick a number and keep the same numbered phrase throughout all the categories and then the detectives table they received some clues as to the identity of the suspect so that he was wearing dark clothing for example or that he or she was not alone so they had to translate those clues and then the detectives had to go and question them to ask where they were what they were doing who they were with etc to find out who the culprit was now of course it was completely contrived because I think whoever had sentences two might have been number two was obviously the thief so you do get one at the end as long as the suspects keep to the same numbered phrase on it for each category and then when we'd found the thief everyone switched roles to play journalists and they did a writing task to write up what they'd done in that lesson so is in the style of a newspaper clipping they had to write who stole it who the thief was all using the imperfect tense as well so some of the feedback I got from the students was that it was good because it was real life and I suppose it is in a way because the Mona Lisa was stolen but it adds that element of authenticity in the lesson and I think they really appreciated that. They were all on task all the time and they really wanted to get involved in it and see who'd done it. And someone else said it was like being part of the story so they're fully immersed in it. It was a real, as I say, immersive experience for them and um, I had no behaviour issues either because they were all, as I said, on task and they really enjoyed it. So, I mean, it was adaptable and you could add or take away the support as they need, as and when they need it. And yeah, it's definitely one that I'll be using again. Some lovely practical ideas there, but now it's time to get serious and look at how we can use a murder mystery activity in the languages classroom. Now, it's important to say at this point that before you try it a murder mystery activity in your classroom that you mustn't forget it's absolutely essential that you call the police first. Hello officer, can I help you with your inquiries? Right, there's been a murder. Stop. Nobody move. I'm not moving. I'm just trying to work out a super alibi and clues for my classroom murder mystery activity to promote problem solving, critical thinking, learning independence and some purposeful fun. Stop. Nobody move. There's been a murder. So you said? There's been a murder. Anything else to add? There's been a murder. Right, well, thank you for your assistance, officer, but I think we'd better ask someone else for some advice. Here's Miss Causa and Modern underscore Per to give some more helpful suggestions. Hi, my name's Miss Causa, and you can find me on Twitter by searching for Miss Causa at HIS Languages. As part of my school's Innovation Week, I've been doing thinking skills lessons with my students in Year 7 and Year 8. In year seven, students have been studying the topic of school, particularly focused on school subjects and timetable vocabulary. And therefore, I give them a challenge in which Hermione had joined our school and her cat Crookshanks had destroyed her timetable. 
and Professor McGonagall, obviously being naturally furious at her for being so irresponsible, had refused to give her a new timetable and had instead given her a series of cryptic clues. The students worked in groups of no more than three to complete this task and were given a copy of the clues and a blank timetable to complete. The clues were cryptic in that they couldn't be solved in the order that they appeared and they might say, for example, on Monday and Tuesday we have maths at the same time. Additionally, in year eight, students have been studying the topic of food and drink and therefore they were given a murder mystery task in which they had to use a restaurant menu and descriptions of a family member's likes and dislikes to work out what they had ordered for each of the meals and identify a common ingredient that had poisoned them. Alongside the cryptic clues, and the resources that the students had to complete. They also had access to dictionaries. They could use their devices to access online dictionaries such as wordreference.com and they were also given hint cards. The hint cards were a fantastic tool that I found stopped them for asking me for support in that they were each given three hint cards and I told them they could ask me for help with any vocabulary they could not work out on their own. The students, however, because they had this resource, were so determined and enthusiastic to work it out independently that they didn't ask me for any help whatsoever. And the lessons were fantastic as they were based solely around collaboration, independent learning and critical thinking. And the students really enjoyed them, as you can see from the snippet that I've included. You can find the resources for both of these lessons on the TES by searching for French Harry Potter Thinking Skills Lesson or French Food and Drink Murder Mystery Lesson. Hi, my name is Sophie and I really enjoyed the murder mystery activity because we used our communication skills. We each had a different role to participate in and we learned lots of new vocabulary. Hi, this is Modeling Perth Hack at Modern underscore Perth. I just wanted to give some information about the murder mystery activity I tweeted about recently. The idea behind this is just to develop the reading for interest and enjoyment in our students, which we tend to fail to do in the classroom. So the students are giving a simple, basic plot of a murder mystery and information about character. And the idea is simply for them to read the text and try and find out for themselves who the killer could be. At this stage is the first time there is no right or wrong answer. It's really about developing the enjoyment of reading and it is a non-compulsory task. The student can or not pick up a text, get engaged with it and simply provide their own opinion on who the murderer is and anyone who enters will get a reward. So far there's there's been some quite strong interest from our S1 and S2 students. I would say about a third of them have been interested in grabbing a text to get involved and the S5 student higher commented on the fact that it's actually nice to read something different than just a normal text in class. Super creative murder mystery ideas. Thank you so much to those teachers for sharing. And before we move on to escape rooms, a final word from our Detective Taggart. I hope you find these ideas of using murder mysteries in the classroom useful. A big thank you to at Glasgow3000 for his great detective work for this podcast. Hope you like the We Am Dram, but perhaps a more qualified person for this episode would be Sue Cave and her language detectives. Here's Sue to tell us more. Hello, Sue Cave here at Southern PL Show. I'd like to tell you about a resource which is freely available to download from the Sharing Good Practice area of my website, www.cavelanguages.co.uk. It's called A Language Detectives Day, which a former colleague and I devised for able linguists. The idea was that in the morning the children received training in language learning strategies and linguistic knowledge about Spanish, Italian, German and Welsh through a series of activities. Each one was designed to make them reflect on communication 
and memorization, how to use prior knowledge for decoding, and the fact that different languages have different sentence structures and different sounds for the same letters. The activities included Chinese whispers in Mandarin, always great fun, a scavenger hunt using bilingual dictionaries to decode the clues, which could be quite frenetic, and the trickiest of all, naming a language just by its intonation from a selection of recordings, including Finnish, Malay and Latvian. The children work competitively in teams and receive points as well as time penalties for each activity and noted down their findings in their language detective notebooks. This all led on to the afternoon where they had to prevent a crime being committed by solving clues left by, you guessed it, a multilingual gang of course. This was one of my favourite events of the year and it was such a privilege to work with children so interested in how languages work. All the resources, including audio files and instructions, are available for you and if you don't have the luxury of dedicating a whole day to this, the activities can be used as standalone ones in the classroom and will be suitable for most abilities and ages to get everyone thinking like a language detective. Enjoy. Thanks ever so much to Sue for sharing those fantastic ideas for primary language learners and now it's time to take a deep dive into escape rooms and how they can be used to enhance language learning. So... First of all, we're going to hear from Sasha Stollens, who's going to give us a definition of escape rooms and talk about the value of using escape rooms in the languages classroom, followed by Gavin, then Pitlockry French, then Jushmo, then Madame Petit Gâteau, then Senorita Maron, all the way from New Zealand, then Miss MFL1, then RKCLHS on using Flipgrid and Google Forms in the escape room activity that I mentioned earlier in the podcast, then Aaron McClucky1 from Australia on a QR code race, Then, from a classics escape room point of view, we're going to hear from Karen Downs. And finally, Kate Evans, who was inspired by hearing our Tech Talk interview, Graham Stanley, present about escape rooms earlier this year at the IOTEFL conference. Hi, my name is Sascha Stollans, that's S-A-S-C-H-A-S-T-O-L-L-H-A-N-S, and I'm a senior teaching associate in German studies at Lancaster University. I'd like to talk to you about escape games in language classes, And just in case you don't know what an escape game is, escape games or escape rooms or sometimes called breakout rooms are a very popular free time activity where a group of players has to complete a series of activities to achieve a specific goal, which is usually escaping from the room. So there is usually a setting, a storyline and music and clues hidden in all those different activities And it's a fun activity and has to be completed in a limited amount of time. I think escape games could be a great way to spice up traditional group work and language classes just by embedding them in a specific storyline. So you could create a story around those activities, maybe play some music and most importantly, define a specific goal that links all those different activities that students have had to complete together. This could create a very engaging atmosphere as it awakens students' competitiveness and their enthusiasm for games. And I think escape games are also great because they train a lot of other transferable skills, just like group work, problem-solving skills, communication skills, as students have to really work in the group and communicate with each other, and analytical skills. So there's already lots of materials on the internet. So if you just Google escape games in language classes, you will find some inspiration. So yeah, have fun. 
Hello, my name is Ossane Mas. I come from Belgium, but I teach in Scotland in Aberdeen at Buxburn Academy. Today, I'm going to speak to you about an escape classroom, which is an activity I did with S2 pupils, so they're around 13 years old. I'm going to talk about the type of activities, the impact, but first, I'm going to talk to you about how I organize my lesson. So first, the pupils came into the classroom and I gave them a log sheet as they were coming in. On the log sheet, there were the instructions to each mission, so the activities, there were six of them. Each mission would give them a clue. Each clue would be a letter leading to the password, the final password, which would grant them freedom at the end of the lesson to escape the classroom. So on that log sheet, there were the instructions, but I also showed them a video, a Mission Impossible type of video, which I made with Powtoon, where all the instructions were given. So they knew they would have to work in teams of three or four, and that to find where the missions were hidden in the classroom, they would have to understand the instructions on the little card. So on the little card, it would say, mission one is hidden behind the computers, mission two is hidden in the drawer with the coloring pencils and, for example, near the window and things like that. So they knew they would have to find that, but also that they would only be given the clue and access to the following mission if each member of the team had completed the task on their log sheet. So that was it. And secondly, I'm going to talk about the type of missions. So the first activity was a riddle. The second one was a crack the code activity with the countries because our topic was holidays. Well, it is holidays at the moment. And then we had a bilingual domino. We also had emojis to replace with the French words in the text and also little activities with grammar and little cards to sort etc. So that was a type of activities. Now the impacts, what was really striking is that the pupils were extremely engaged. There was barely no behavioral issue. They were all motivated, working in teams, helping each other. So I barely had to help because they were helping each other or using the resources available. So dictionaries, jotters, helping each other. That was really, really impressive. And also, they were really having fun. So that was very, very nice to see. And I asked their opinion at the end of the lesson, and some of the comments were quite funny. So there is one who said, definitely better than a normal lesson. Another one said, I thought it was interesting and entertaining. It was also very fun working in a team. And another one said it was fun and funny, and I was hardworking. Yes, because a few comments said it was a lot of work, too much work. And actually, it's not maybe a bad thing. But yeah, the pace was extremely fast. So they were really engaged, working extremely fast. They produced a lot of work. So I'm very impressed by them. So yeah, in three words, I would say engagement, autonomy and pace. Of course, fun, I could add that one. And I would highly recommend you to do Escape Classroom yourself. Let me know if you've got any question and enjoy. Hello, my name's Gordon McKenzie. I tweet online at Pitlochry French. To end the year, we wanted to give our pupils a fun and novel experience, so we ran our own escape room. There were some tweaks. Obviously, you can't lock a room in a school and ask people to come out of it. So we used a jar and a cheap combination number padlock that we found online. It tested all their skills, everything, the vocabulary they'd learnt over the year. We had four puzzles hidden throughout the classroom with clues in the target language, like behind the door, under a hat, in the drawer. 
and each puzzle solved gave one digit of combination lock. We used the Tarsia cards, which when the Tarsia jigsaw was formed, gave you the answer on the back. We used a Where's Wally puzzle with grid references along both sides using their geography skills. We used a number task using dictionaries, it would say, look at the fourth word on page, whatever. And we had a cipher code using different symbols and online cipher generators spelt out. The answer is four in the target language. The emphasis was very much on skills, working as a group, having to communicate with others, solving problems. People's really enjoyed it. They got really engaged with it. Uh, what we found best of all was that no matter what groups you formed, it wasn't necessarily the most academically able groups that did best, but the ones who were able to actually work together, speak to each other, and use a little bit of cunning as well and common sense. That's the ones who really flew through it. It was a really enjoyable activity. We'd absolutely do it again, although it has cost me a fortune in chocolate. Thanks. Hi, this is Julia. On Twitter, I'm at Yushmo, J-U-S-C-H-M-O, and in other places, I'm Ich bin ein Berliner. I do escape room activities in my German lessons, which means it's an overarching story. For example, find the spy or communicate with the aliens, which is made up of lots of different activities and puzzles. And it's a combination of using a computer and using paper-based activities. So each team will have a computer and put the answers into a Google form. Sometimes it's embedded in a Google site as well. And then the puzzles are either on the internet or on paper. So for example, they might have a wheel with different words and have to turn the wheel to match up the target language word and the English word to find the code. Or on a computer, they might use 360cities.com, which is kind of like Google Street View, and they look around the scene and have to find certain buildings or words written on the shops and so on. These escape room activities do take quite a lot of prep because you have to make the Google form and think of the puzzles and so on. But the students really enjoy them and I normally do about one per school year per class and they are already looking forward to it if they have done one before. I normally also make a little video as an introduction so to really set the scene. And making Google Sites is basically like making a PowerPoint. So I would really recommend looking into that. It's very easy. If you want to find out more, I've got a website about this which is called escaperoomlessons.wordpress.com or you can ask me on Twitter. Hello, my name is Steph McMahon, and I'm also known as Madame Petit Gâteau on Twitter. Recently, I created a Spanish escape room style task for my year eight Spanish class. The task was entitled La Gripe Española, the Spanish flu, and it was a deadly Spanish flu where the students had an hour in which to unlock a box in the room which had the cure inside. They were actually Haribo, but you get the gist. So I had to devise seven tasks for the students to do in order to get a series of numerical answers. And in the final task, the students had to add up and take away some of the numbers in order to unlock the box and get the cure. So there was a lot of numeracy involved, as well as listening tasks, some grammar tasks, deciphering whether the Spanish was in the preterite or the present tense. They had to do some translations and reading tasks as well. We used iPads with some QR codes in order to find different websites and do some Spanish treasure hunts. And all the while, they had to decipher the word answers and convert them into the numerical answers. So there were code breakers to do as well. I've got three students here to give some feedback on what they thought of the lesson. Escape movie was very intriguing and excitable. The tasks at hand were slightly challenging, but very fun. 
It was a great way to recap the things we've learned, and it was also very fun. I like the escape room because there was lots of interactive activities like unlocking the locked box to get the equipment for the next task. Thank you. So overall, the students seemed to be very engaged and very excited with the task. It was something very different and outside the box for Spanish, if you excuse the pun. The students have asked if they could do it again. And then following that from that lesson, I've had other students from other classes and also my French classes asking if they could do an escape room as well. I'm going to be adapting the current tasks that I've done into various other topics as well as into the other language of French as well. I hope that you have some fun creating your own escape rooms for your classes. Thank you. Bye. Hola, buenos dias. I am at Senorita Marron and my colleague and I are going to share our ideas behind the escape room we recently created and used with our U11 students. The design was around combining classes to use French and Spanish simultaneously to give an extra challenge, maintain motivation and promote MFL. We used a task-based approach to have maximum student output in languages, but also to show problem-solving, lateral thinking and teamwork skills. We created the following activities. Maths problems in the target language, where the answers gave a code to a safe. The message in the safe was in the 24-hour clock to unlock the tablet. A language-perfect multiple-choice quiz, which spelled out the word poster. Dates and posters, which were in French and Hispanic festivals, adding a cultural element. Each date corresponded to a date in the diary, which had a word forming a sentence, which led them to a monkey holding a USB. The USB had a song with a rhythm, which they had to tap out to let them out of the door. Between us, creating printing resources took around three hours, but it was totally worth it. And now we have it. We can tweak for different year groups. How we ran it was we had a room set up where we had teams of six, three French, three Spanish students who all worked together. For each team that competed, we gave an extra clue in the target language a maximum of four times. This was enough for each team to move on to the next clue. One benefit was that it was cross-curricular, so used technology, literacy and numeracy and all students participated, not just the strongest in the target language, and they took risks. How the target language was used? A huge amount was used in both languages, which was a big surprise to us. They had to use cognates, teamwork and prior knowledge to get through the clues. We chose a shared lesson on the timetable, which had an hour of lunch beforehand, which was a good opportunity to share some food, to start the game off and to ensure we had enough time for each group. The quickest group took 38 minutes and the longest about 50. The escape room, it was enjoyable working as a team. Like the clues were hard to figure out, but the room setup was like good. And it was challenging, but really fun. Hi everyone. My name's Rebecca Davey and I'm a French and Spanish teacher in the East of England. You can find me on Twitter at MissMFL1. I'm just going to briefly talk about how I've used escape rooms in my lessons. So, so far I have only used them as revision activities so just reinforcing the vocabulary and grammar we've seen in the previous module. We've recently finished a film study on Tintin with the year eights, so I kind of wanted to incorporate that as a theme for my escape room. So at the start of the lesson, I played a video to the students explaining that Snowy the dog had been kidnapped and that they would have to work through a series of tasks to find the code to open the lock and then to save Snowy. At the front of the room, I had a box which I padlocked, which had some sweets inside and a toy snowy that the students could then win. At the end of the video, a one-hour timer started, and that's when they had to quickly get into groups and start the activities. The tasks that the students had to work through varied, so they started with a code wheel, which just helped them revise the infinitive verbs, 
And then they moved on to activities like they had atasia, reading exercises and translations. And then each of those activities that they did would give the students a code or sorry, a number or a series of numbers that they would then write on an answer sheet. So it would be something simple like they would have to write down how many words were in each of the French sentences that they translated. And then at the end of the activities they completed, they would have a piece of paper with a load of numbers on. And all they had to do was count up all of those numbers. And then that gave them a free digit code to open the lock. Overall, I've been really, really pleased with how well the lessons have been. All of the students have been engaged and motivated and they've worked really well in their groups. I've particularly liked how independent the students have been because I have found in some lessons the students aren't as independent as I'd like them to be. So in this escape room lesson, I basically refused to help them unless they didn't understand a task and everyone was still really engaged. So that was really great. In terms of their learning, like I said, it was just revision. So they didn't learn anything new. But I do feel like it was an effective revision task, especially because everyone was involved. And yeah, I hope that's been helpful to you. If you have any questions, feel free to message me on Twitter and I will answer anything. Have fun in your escape room lessons. Hello, this is LHS, and I'm here to talk about using flip hunts and escape rooms with Google Forms in the World Language Classroom. A flip hunt is essentially a digital scavenger hunt where the teacher creates a menu of assignments, of tasks that the students must create, and they record their responses using Flipgrid. So the focus is on interpersonal and or presentational communication. For example, if I'm doing a unit where kids need to be able to describe their school, talk about their school, I might give them a series of tasks that send them out around their campus to film themselves recording certain prompts or acting out certain scenarios in the target language. Kathy Kurzanowski is a great ed tech specialist on Twitter who has a lot of information on using FlipHunt, which don't really require a ton of expertise with the Flipgrid platform. Escape rooms are similarly interactive, fun, collaborative, great for reviewing or previewing material. Again, the teacher designs a series of activities that all have some kind of code or sequence of letters as, as an outcome. And so students are working in teams to solve these challenges and put their answers into a Google form in order to escape the classroom, so to speak. John Meehan is a great ed tech specialist on Twitter who tweets a lot about how to use these, how to do them effectively. They are a great way to replace a traditional unit exam. They really get kids working in groups using the target language The activities can be any kind of assignment, a crossword, a reading, a video. And um, I think both flip hunts and escape rooms get the classroom up and moving and allow you to use a variety of methods that really engage kids and have them use the language. Hi, my name's Anne McClucky, and today I'm going to describe to you an activity I did with my students called the QR Code Amazing Race. The reason why we did it is we wanted to have our students learning outside the classroom context whilst using the target language. So to set up the activity, what we did is we decided on 20 different locations around our school and then came up with 19 activities which we wanted our students to do at each of those locations. We had a cohort of 60 students, so we had 15 groups of four and we issued each of those groups with an iPad and then we also allocated them a colour. And the reason why we did this is we didn't want 
the students to be at the same location at the same time. So for each location, what you do need to do is create a QR code and we use qrcodegenerator.com. And with that, you need to actually put a clue in for in the target language for the place that the students need to go to. So for example, you could say in the target language, if you would like to borrow a book, you would go to this location. The students then would realize that it's a library, they would go to the library, and then there would be an activity at the library that they would need to do. Some of our activities included listening activities, filling gaps, questions and answers, making hiragana characters out of their bodies, a whole range of activities both for the different levels of abilities in the cohort and also catering for the different learning styles. So after the students did the activity, they would take a photo to keep their log and then they would scan the code for their next location and then they would go and do the next activity. The students were really engaged in this activity and it was really good to see that students who were often disengaged in class were actually really engaged and working together collaboratively with their peers. I did organise the groups in a way that they had a range of abilities in the group so that they could assist each other if need be. But it was a really worthwhile activity. It does take some preparation. But if you'd like to know any more information, please don't hesitate to send me a message. Hi, my name is Karen Dowd. I'd like to share with you my escape room style lesson. You can find out more at my Twitter page at Karen underscore Downs. I set about trying to create a group task lesson to review grammar and vocabulary and introduce a new civilization topic with my lively year seven classes. I devised 16 short tasks, four nouns, four verbs, four vocabulary and four gladiator tasks. Once I got all the tasks, I divided them into different packs for each set. They would receive one of each topic per pack. Each pack also had part of a code and some coded messages. My messages would help them to find the keys and a prize hidden in the classroom at the end of the lesson. Each pack also had random extras topic-related cartoons or dead-end signs or extra information that I thought might be useful from other textbooks. I had to sort through and complete all four tasks in order to get to the next pack. After the first class, I decided that actually 40 minutes wasn't very long and I only needed 12 and not 16 tasks. They were focused throughout the lessons and really motivated. I had kept groups small of around only four or five pupils, so they worked well as a team and everyone could be focused on a task throughout. They did many more tasks than I would expect in a normal lesson and they also retained information on the new topic for the next week's lessons, which I was really pleased about. I was also delighted that they were all using their books, whether to look at verb or noun tables or vocabulary lists or to read the information about gladiators rather than coming to me to ask every question. It meant that I was able to walk around the room and mark their work or provide encouragement. I would definitely do it again, possibly with older classes or as a revision tool. I hope it's useful for you. Hi, my Twitter name is at Kate Evans, and I want to talk to you about an escape game I did with my students. I teach in a French graduate school, and we're specialised in sciences, and I also teach the prepa class, which are students preparing to enter the school. They're mostly aged between 17 and 18, and have language levels of between a low B1 and a C2 in both English and Spanish, and most of them are L1 French. So I wanted an end-of-year activity, and this year at IATEFL, Graham Stanley presented his escape game. So it looked perfect for what I wanted, so I copied and modified the material for my students. All the originals can be found on Graham's EFL blog. So what is it? Well, it's not strictly speaking an escape game, but rather a crime to solve in a given time frame, and hours took an hour. During a dinner party, a rich collector of antiques had a major piece stolen from his collection. The CID were called to help police. 
The owner provided information on all the guests, and once the students were briefed, they formed groups and were led to the scene of the crime. So we dressed a large room, a simple classroom, with clues and other random objects to make it look like a home, and also to throw out some red herrings. The guest profiles were hidden as well in the room, but the final profile could only be found after clues were found and solved. The stolen object was also in the room, but the students had to find the combination to a series of locks to get at it. Clues included things written in invisible ink and in the Caesar cipher code, which you can easily find on the internet. And some numbers and clues were also written on the back of, for example, a broken photo or disguised as art. Where my version differed is that I had translated half the clues and info into Spanish. And for this, I worked with Adirne, our Spanish teacher, and I also enlisted another English teacher, Sophie. So there were three of us in a room of about 40 students to lead and also mislead the students during the game. So this bilingual method worked because Graham's collector was a Spanish speaker. My objectives were to practice and reinforce structures and language chunks learnt over the semester, things like hypothesizing, suggesting, narrative tenses, to use logic and reasoning skills, to give future engineers practice in working on a multilingual project, and also especially to have fun. So the students really did enjoy the game, and very little French was heard, which is really unusual. Next time, I'll be adding more voice messages, perhaps more encrypted messages, and more padlocks. We finished asking students to come up with a hypothesis for the crime, and the spoiler is that the owner did it with the sixth guest for the insurance, and next we will probably get them to film a news report on it. Thanks for listening. Love, love, love this episode show and tell. So much stuff to dig into for teachers who are ready to dive into escape rooms, murder mysteries, lots of stuff to research, keep you busy, and especially love that share at the end there by Kate Evans, because it seeks so nicely to this episode's Tech Talk interview, who just happens to be with Graham Stanley. In this episode, Graham and Joe and I get together to talk about Graham's passion for escape rooms, how they can be applied to a language learning context. Graham's going to share a host of ideas, lots of links, but folks, don't worry, they're all logged, as always, in our show notes for your reading and researching pleasure. For today's Tech Talk interview, it is our pleasure to be speaking to the one and only Graham Stanley, who's been interested in how technology can enhance language learning for many years now. In fact, I remember fondly connecting with you, Graham, back in 2006, talking over Skype about how to get into podcasting and what recording equipment to buy from your apartment in Barcelona. So welcome to the MFL Twitterati podcast, Graham. Thank you very much, Joe. And yes, it was a long time ago, but I remember it well. <laughs> I'm very excited that you've invited me to be a guest on your podcast. I'm a fan. Oh, that's great. Well, it's amazing to have you on. For those people who aren't aware of your background, could you maybe tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and describe what sparked your current interest in escape rooms, which is what this podcast episode is all about? Sure. I'm currently working for the British Council. My job title is English for Education Systems Lead, which is a little bit of a, of a mouthful. I'm based in Mexico and essentially I'm, I coordinate the programs and projects for the British Council in the Americas region, all to do with English language learning and teaching. I became interested in escape rooms, live escape rooms as I call them, because previously when I was a teacher in Barcelona in Spain, I was uh, very interested in using computer games in the classroom with students. And that led to me co-writing a book called Digital Play, which was all about the use of video games to help teachers use them in the classroom. And Escape Room Games, the video game version, 
that was one of the most interesting genres to use with language learners in the classroom because of the built-in gap fills and the puzzles, etc. Then fast forward to around last year, or maybe a bit earlier, and I realized that this had become a phenomenon. Escape Room Games had become like a big entertainment franchise with uh, various uh, escape rooms in all cities around the world, and also that teachers were starting to become interested in them. And I looked at some of the resources and things that teachers had done, but I didn't see a lot of language teaching adaptations. And I thought, there's something that needs to be done by someone. And so I decided to investigate it myself. And that led to me deciding to run an Electronic Village online session. As you know, Joe, that's an annual event run by TESOL. And they're voluntary sessions where anyone can join. So I started one with a couple of colleagues and we examined escape rooms and how they could be adapted in all their shape and form to language learning and teaching. We had 140 teachers join and lots of fun and I learned a lot. And um, since then, I've done a couple of presentations at conferences. And I think I'm in a situation now to help other teachers not waste their time when they start doing this in the classroom, because I learned the hard way. I made lots of mistakes along the way. And Grim, maybe we might have some listeners who are already lost on just what is an escape room. So if you don't mind just walking us back a little bit of just what is an escape room, puzzle games, puzzle rooms, and then also where's the bridge then to the classroom with the digital versions? Of course, you're you're absolutely right, Noah. I think an escape room, as the name suggests, usually is you find yourself in a room and you have to get out of the room. And the way that the entertainment games work is that you usually have an hour to escape the room. And there are a number of clues and puzzles, etc. Usually there's a storyline behind it. And it's a really fun activity to do with friends, family, colleagues, etc., the live escape rooms really are based on the computer version, as I understand it. So computer games had normally a series of rooms with different puzzles. And you as the player had to look for clues, look for objects, unlock locks, open safes, look behind paintings, decipher codes and ciphers, etc. in order to, to solve the puzzle and escape the room, if you like. So that's how it began. And you asked about how that lends itself to education and particularly language learning and teaching. Well, I think for me, I always find that the more memorable the experience in the classroom, the more that students are going to learn. And so rather than sitting at desks, opening books and doing exercises, that's a very routine thing. And it's not a very memorable experience unless you shake it up a bit. So I've always, since I became a teacher, I was always looking for different ways of doing language learning and teaching to make the experience very memorable for students. So this idea of embodied language learning, getting the students moving around, they're looking for things, they're talking to each other, they're focused on a story, hopefully, becomes something that they will remember. I mean, I remember when I was learning French at school, the experiences that I remember the most were the ones where the teacher actually did something a bit different and got us 
watching a cartoon in French or actually interacting, role-playing, wearing costumes, all sorts of things. Yeah, that's awesome. I suppose you'd generally talk about escape rooms under the umbrella of project-based learning. Would that be the case, do you think, Graham? Yeah, you can sort of label it at all sorts of things. Project-based learning is, is one of them. And I think that's a good framework for making this work because I think one of the important things is is actually you want to do this right. You want to do it for the learning. You want to focus first upon the learning outcomes. If you do that and really understand why you're doing it as a teacher and what the students are going to get out of it, then it'll be really worthwhile. I think it's too easy as I've learned, to design an activity that could very well be very entertaining for the students, but actually doesn't have any learning outcomes at the forefront. So do you see, Graham, kind of the connection between, uh, I guess, the next thing, just gamification versus game-based learning, that it's not just involving play on the gamification side, but actually taking the learning and basing it in a game, but the learning's still happening and it's still really meaningful even if the game is so well designed that they don't realize they're learning. Yes, there's a lot of controversy about gamification. And I see gamification as a role for that in education, in language learning and teaching. But um, it really has to be well designed. I think there are elements of games which lend themselves very well to the classroom. And you can turn activities using gamification principles into activities that are fun to do. Game-based learning, on the other hand, really sort of looks at the use of games, doesn't it, for learning. So I think it's very important with escape rooms that they're not just activities that have a little bit of escape rooms to them. So they're not sort of disguised tests or disguised activities with, you know, lots of exercises with a lock, with a number that produces a number that you can then use to open a lock, which is a chest to have another pile of tests in them. That's the worst kind of escape room activity I think you can do for the uh, classroom. Do you know, at the risk of asking you to be overly vulnerable, you know, everybody, we're all on a journey together with this work. And I'm sure that, you know, from where you were when you first started, you've realized some growth to where you are now. Are you able to offer a specific example, maybe just from your own growth of what that might look like? Something that you did when you were first getting started that you thought was amazing that now you look back at and think, you know, that's actually a counterexample to what I'm talking about now. Oh, definitely. Uh, I could give you dozens of examples, Noah, of the uh, the false starts I had. You know, I think one of the important things I think for teachers to do that I didn't really do is I'd only been to one live escape room. I'd played lots of video games, but I hadn't visited many live escape rooms. I think it's important to do that. I've subsequently, you know, done a number of them with different people and you get lots of ideas of what works, what doesn't work, what you like, what's exciting, what you know, what takes up too much time, etc. I think then, as far as my design of escape rooms for the classroom is concerned, I think I got into the dynamic of getting excited about a particular aspect of things. One example I can give is jigsaws. I thought, wow, you can take these blank jigsaws and you can decorate them and then you can put them in the room for the students to complete and they'll have clues on them. And so I designed a a jigsaw with a combination that would open a lock. And after I'd spent all this time doing that, I realized it would take about 20 minutes for students to complete the jigsaw and find the number to open the lock. And I'm like, Why would I want students to spend 20 minutes doing that? 
So then rethinking it, I thought, well, okay, I can write words on each of the pieces. And so I can actually write a little narrative on a jigsaw, which would be much better. And so I played around with that and had, you know, sentences, paragraphs, etc., on these jigsaws. Again, though, why would you want students to spend 20 minutes completing a jigsaw so they could read a text that they could normally read within 30 seconds to a minute? It's not a good use of time. So reflecting on all of that, you get to the point where, well, in the language classroom, which is very different to how escape rooms are used in entertainment, what you want to do is there's already a difficulty in comprehension and the, the students expressing themselves. So what you have to do is you make the puzzles part of the, the experience, but they don't take up much time. And the only puzzles that you want to take up much time are the ones that actually get them practicing language. And that's where I started to focus more upon a story and the students having to solve a mystery, for example, which would involve them talking to each other discussing hypotheses of what could have happened, what might have happened, etc. That works very well with advanced students of a language, I think. Yeah, that's absolutely fantastic. And I would definitely recommend the uh, Evo online session that you referred to a moment ago. It's a six-week course, I seem to remember. I uh, had a quick look on the Google Classroom that you set up and had a look at um, some of the videos that you did because you did some Adobe Connect online sessions, which you then recorded. So that's a real treasure trove because I think that's it could be quite daunting, as I think uh, Noah has suggested there, of teachers listening to this and thinking, well, you know, where do I get started? How do I start? And I think that the that online course is a great starting point. And I remember seeing you uh, in Liverpool at the ITEFL conference, Graham, and uh, the room was full. So I don't know how many hundred people were, were in the room, but um, everyone was very excited about what you're talking about because obviously as you say you're normally at the cutting edge of technology use and the fact that you found escape rooms particularly interesting and that there wasn't a lot of um, people out there who were doing work around escape rooms it's really exciting to get you on the podcast and to to dig down deeply into what works and what doesn't work based on your experience so for example could you maybe give a few more suggestions on the types of quick activities that are very good for language learning in an escape room scenario I mean, I have to say, I don't feel I'm any expert on, on this. I mean, I was learning so much from the people who joined the EVO course and subsequently have learned a lot. In fact, the plan is, is to rerun it in January. So if anyone wants to join again and share their experience, they'll be more than welcome because there are so many different ways you can approach this. I mean, as I said, I've approached it one way, which, you know, is the way that makes sense for me and, and what I'm interested in. So I've approached it from the point of view of looking at a strong narrative, but starting really with the learning outcomes. So what do I want the students to learn? So as an example of, of the activity that I think the more successful activity that I designed was, um, was a mystery of the Mayan mask. The idea of I wanted the students to talk to each other. So it's speaking practice to have the opportunity to put forward hypotheses about what they think the, who they think the guilty party is in this mystery of a stolen mask to talk to each other, to debate, to argue, to then change their minds, look for evidence and put that forward, etc. This is obviously for more advanced learners of the language. So what I found helped was once I decided that and I knew what I wanted, then I needed a story that had sufficient mystery in it. So it was character driven. There was a scenario that was uh, a museum collector, it was a mask at the end of it. There was a goal which the students had to actually find the mask at the end of the escape room activity. 
I didn't want to design it for an hour because I think in a language learning classroom, that's too long. So I think 20 to 30 minutes is, should be the, the actual design. And then before and after you've got language practice that you can do and follow on activities. I think that works really well. Story based because you can then take the experience as the students find it and then build upon it. They can write reports afterwards. They can do follow up interviews. This was a crime. So they could you know, role play police and suspects. All sorts of things you can do afterwards, which are, make it worthwhile. The report writing you can focus on for student homeworks, etc. Then I think, um, you know, designing a flowchart. And if you're working with groups of students, you know, if you've got a big class, escape rooms are normally done between two and five or six people is the optimum number of people for entertainment. In a class, you're lucky if you only have two to six students. So if you have 30 students, then you really want to split them up into uh, groups of five, which makes it complicated to design the activity, but it isn't impossible I've actually observed other teachers now doing escape room activities after I've, um, after I designed one. And one particularly clever way is to use color coding. So you have groups where the clues are of particular colors, if there are paper clues, et cetera, or pointers. And so the red group knows that they need to ignore any green clues they find, et cetera, which is quite a clever way of doing it. You know, Graham, I love that. And folks, if you're just getting as excited as Joe and I are listening to Graham and you're not already following him on Twitter, he's at Graham Stanley on Twitter. And we'll be referencing all of this stuff in our show notes. But if you want to get up to speed, you can definitely pop over to escaperoomelt.wordpress.com and, and play along at home. And Graham, something you just hinted at there was, you know, your own affinity for particularly clever puzzles or particularly clever clues. You know, I know I'm really excited about getting clever around like having uh, a Google voice number that students discover the number as, you know, an Easter egg. And then they call that number and the voicemail greeting is how they access the next clue. Nice. Or something I, I've seen students really enjoy is there's an emoji cipher. And so in the target language, I'm describing the emoji that they need to use in order to unlock the cipher to get to the next clue. And I'm just curious, what are some kind of other favorite clues or puzzle types that are really bringing you delight right now that you'd like to share with our listeners? I need to take notes on those, Noah, what you've just <laughs> described for my next uh, next escape room activity. Yeah, I think this is what makes it so good. There are so many different things you can do and so many different ways you can approach puzzles, etc., just learning from other people, stealing or borrowing ideas from other people and, and other sources as well. There are lots of puzzle books, which is a good source. There are lots of sites on the web where you can get ideas for codes and ciphers and puzzles and things, which, you know, if you've got an interest, then that's a good place to start. Examples, I think what I thought was going to be an easy puzzle, which baffled people, was if you take a word or a sentence and you write it and then you cut it in half and then you use a mirror, you know, you've got two halves of a, of a sentence and use a mirror and then you duplicate it. That's quite a funny puzzle. So they need to find both parts of the word and put them together to be able to read it. That I thought people would understand and they didn't. It took longer. So I think when you're doing that, I think, first of all, what have I learned from that? I think it's important to try things out, preferably with a couple of colleagues to see if they find it really difficult before you inflict it upon students. 
because you don't want to waste their time, really. That time in the classroom is so precious for learning. And also, you don't have to make the puzzles very difficult. The temptation, if you're a puzzle fan, if you love difficult puzzles, etc., is to, oh, this is a really good puzzle. They're going to find it really difficult to, to solve <laughs> this one. That's not the approach you need to take as an educator. It's the same when it comes to a language. You need to pitch the level of the puzzle just above the level of difficulty of the students, really. So they, you know, you want students to be pushed because if they're not pushed, they become bored with language learning and with this type of activity as well. But you don't want them to become completely frustrated and give up because it's too difficult. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Now, on that point, on that very point, how do you strike the balance between the L1 and the L2 being used in the classroom? Because someone listening to this might think that's all very well, but my students are all just going to be speaking English while doing the activity. How do you ensure that they're using as much target language as possible? Yeah, well, I think that's why I like the story aspect of things. So I have things for them to read in the target language. I use the target language for clues. So if they get stuck, then you you give them clues, but you give them it in the target language. You could build in, as Noah suggested, where they have to go to websites and read or listen to something. You can make voice recordings where they have to decipher and comprehend clues that way. I think the important thing is, just as it is in the classroom anyway, is that if there's anything which can very easily be told to the students, which is going to save them time and solve any confusion, if you like, then it's better to do it in the uh, their native language or you know, the language of the students. You know, the same with classroom management or something that is all about the interference of the learning aims. It's better just to use in a foreign language classroom the English to to get over that and move on with the actual learning of the actual language. So I think any skilled teacher, experienced teacher will know when to use L1 and when to use L2, really. Well, thank you so much, Graham, for your time. My mind's been blown. I'm sure Noah's mind's been blown <laughs> as well on all the all the fantastic tips that you've shared with us. And as has been said, if you want to check out the Evo course and your, your dedicated blog as well, which is, can you remind the listeners of your blog? Yes, there's not a lot of on there at the moment, but as the year moves on and I start preparing for the second version of the course, it'll become a lot better. But it's Escape Room ELT, it's English Language Teaching, escaperoomelt.wordpress.com. Awesome. So that'll be an amazing treasure trove of uh, information, I'm sure, moving forward on how people can get started with Escape Rooms, listening to this. And uh, Noah, a few final thoughts, perhaps, as being a self-proclaimed escape room nerd. <laughs> I am absolutely an escape room nerd, and, and uh, Graham's being a little bit uh, humble here on how awesome the site is. It also has a link to the Google Classroom along with the group code to join that course if you want to check out the course that Graham mentioned that he taught. And Graham, a uh, real pleasure to meet you. I- I'm now uh, you know, going to start looking at tickets to Mexico City to come down and visit you and play some uh, <laughs> escape rooms uh, with you in Mexico City. Although the last time I was there, I did an Inquisition escape room that, uh, although if you've played that one yet down there, but it, it was downright scary torture chamber stuff. But uh, <laughs> I'll have to check it out. Yeah, we, we woke, uh, they, they blindfold you and then you, they take off your blindfold and you're in medieval torture devices and have to literally get out of them. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, moving on. <laughs> if you do come to Mexico City, then please look me up. I need more people to play escape rooms with. You know, I can't go to as, as many as I'd like because there aren't that many people who are as obsessed about <laughs> escape rooms as I am. <laughs> 
And again, that goes for any of your listeners. So if any of your listeners find themselves in Mexico City and want to do an escape room with me, please get in touch. Thank you so much there from Graham Stanley for sharing his amazing insights on how you can incorporate escape rooms into the languages classroom. And also, I'm very grateful both to Graham and to Noah for getting up early in order to record the podcast. So Noah had to get up at the unbelievable time of half past five in the morning in Denver, Colorado. Graham was in Uruguay. He's normally in Mexico, but he's, he was in Uruguay doing work for the British Council at that time. So that was half past eight, literally half an hour before he had a whole day meeting. So we had to make sure we nailed it. And I was plain sailing in the UK at um, half past 12, just after lunchtime. So uh, it was fine for me, but I'm so grateful to everyone for finding the time to make that recording because I think it's a really valuable interview, which I'm sure lots of listeners will appreciate very much. So if they're thinking about applying escape rooms in their own context, what about you, Noah? What did you think? You know, it sometimes feels like I'm in my own private escape room with scheduling with you, Joe. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, uh, you know, I, I, that was just so awesome. I know that we've gotten some, you know, friendly yet critical feedback about uh, being so positive that it almost sounds obsequious at times. But, you know, the geeking out and just enthusiasm that we had for Graham and his ideas was 100% authentic and real. It was really just exciting. I felt like a little kid with a propeller on my hat, Joe, 5.30 or not. <laughs> it was just a lot of fun for me. And, you know, I've gone down some rabbit holes myself with some of his ideas. And, you know, I've even working on developing my own workshop proposals for conferences here in the U.S. about it. Wow, that's amazing. Really great stuff. So I think we've come to the end of episode eight. What have we got uh, coming up in episode nine, Noah? Yeah, coming up in episode nine, the theme is the power of international collaboration. This is a theme that's super mega muy importante to me because of its impact on how we can change the world as language teachers through enhancing language learning and the promotion of intercultural understanding. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Noah. I know that we're big fans of international collaboration and we've been doing it for years and years and years. And I'm really excited about all the different voices you're going to hear from the MFL Twitter RT in the next episode on practical ways in which they're incorporating international collaboration into the language classroom and making it work for them. So great stuff. Something to look forward to in September. The MFL Twitterati podcast, celebrating the voices of the modern language teaching community. If you've enjoyed this episode of the MFL Twitterati podcast, please rate and review us on Apple's podcast app so more language teachers can find us. You can subscribe to the MFL Twitterati podcast on the Apple podcast app, Google Podcasts, Overcast, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For information, go to our podcast site, mfltwitteratipodcast.com, where there are lots of references to this episode's content and all the previous episodes too. 